Bible, turn to Luke 18. Luke 18. Be looking at verses 1 through 8 of this passage. Luke chapter 18. We all face, uh, if you're human and you are, we all face quitting points. Times when we feel like we've given all that we can give, we've taken all that we can take, we've done all that we could do, and we get to our wit's end, a quitting point. For some, there are relational quitting points. The relational quitting points occur when dealing with someone you really care about brings you to a point of extreme exasperation. There, there are moral quitting points. If you're a Christian, for sure there are moral quitting points when doing wrong seems to pay so well and doing right seems to cost too much. When life offers you a spiritual shortcut and it's very, very appealing when the pressure's on, you feel like just quitting morally for a little bit. There are physical quitting points when literally you've, you've gone so hard and so long that you just don't even think you can put one foot in front of the other. There are emotional quitting points when you've cried every tear that's inside of your body. You feel dried up, almost numb. I, I've been to emotional quitting points when, when a family member has died or I've gone through a tragedy of some kind. I just, after that initial grief and days of, of sporadic weeping and grieving, I just almost feel numb. You've been there before? Emotionally. We all face different kind of quitting points, but I want to talk to you about Another quitting point tonight, and that's the quitting point we often face in prayer. Here's what I found out about the discipline of prayer. It's hard to start, but it's easy to stop. Have you noticed that? It's just the opposite of, like, bad diet habits. Bad eating, easy to start. Hard to stop. But prayer, which does something good for our soul... Seems like it's really hard to start. And once we do, it's really easy to stop. We stop praying, we quit in prayer for a variety of reasons. A variety of reasons. A variety of reasons bring us to that quitting point where, as the Lord Jesus is going to tell his disciples, we faint, we lose heart in praying. Now, I, I want to survey the crowd tonight. We've got a small little intimate crowd, so I think we can do this just fine. So I want to ask you to participate. I think we can find three or four or five valid, not valid, three or four or five realistic reasons for why we quit in prayer. Who would like to start? All right, Mindy. God doesn't answer our prayer the way we want it to be answered. Who would agree that's a quitting point sometimes? In prayer, I think everybody's with you, Mindy, for sure. Heather. So God doesn't answer in our time. Would you agree with that? That that can, that can bring about a quitting point. All right, y'all are tag-teaming it back there. Brother Troy. Life gets too busy. How many agree with that? Now, it's oxymoronic, isn't it? That, that like, we can't live without prayer, but we try to. We try to get busy without prayer. And it's oxymoronic, but that happens. That, that gets us to stop praying for sure. Give me a couple more. Who else? Yes. Emotionally. 
And I think prayer is an emotional discipline. If you're really praying. If you're really into supplication, adoration, confession, intercession. I mean, prayer is, it's a lot. Yeah, just, you're just out. Yeah. That, that's very practical. How many just get distracted? Yeah. Some things, it's, 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 you just can't even help. It just happens, and, and then we just lose focus. When I was in college, when I was in Bible college, I just had this fierce schedule. I was just telling the two Bible college boys that were here on Sunday night, I don't know if I could ever go back and live those four years over again and do it with sanity. I mean, the schedule's terrible. Living in a dorm, you got to get up super early. You stay up super late. And I can remember literally getting up in the morning, you know, I'm a preacher to be, so you've got to learn how to pray, right? And you go to the prayer closet, and it's still dark. I can remember literally falling asleep <laughs> as I pray. That's how spiritual I was. But it was real, man. I, I think someone else had that. Dottie, did you have your hand up? Yeah, when you feel, you don't feel like God, help us Yeah, when it's impossible. When you're facing something where it's just insurmountable, it's impossible, it's so difficult, why, why even ask? It's just not going to happen. All of those are very realistic. All of those bring us to what I would call a quitting point in prayer. But we're going to find, watch it, that in Jesus' opinion, quitting is not an option when it comes to prayer. That's what he's going to say in our text. Look at verse number 1 of Luke 18. And he spake a parable unto them to this end, that men ought, important word, they ought, Always to pray and not to faint. So, so the call to not quit in, pr in prayer, did you notice, it's a moral imperative. As pastor often tells us, it's not an option to be considered, it's a command to be obeyed. Like God doesn't say men should always pray. He says men ought to always pray and not to faint. I've got to conclude that we are wrong. We're in the wrong if we're not praying. If your life doesn't have within it a rhythm and a pattern of consistent, real communion with God through prayer, I can say this on the authority of this, this verse, you're not right with God. It doesn't matter how often you go to church. It doesn't matter how often I preach. It doesn't matter how well we sing. Doesn't matter how much we give in the offering plate. Doesn't matter how nice we are. Doesn't matter how many people we invite to church. If we're not talking to God, we're not right with God. Now that's the meaning of this parable. Jesus doesn't often give the meaning of the parable before he gives the parable. But in this one, he states his intent right up front. And it's this, don't quit praying. Don't quit Praying, And he tells his disciples this parable because he knows that they're going to face times when they lose heart. And when they faint and they want to give up along the way when it comes to prayer. And he's saying this, when you get to that quitting point, you must persist. And so to illustrate the power, the priority of persistent prayer, he gives this story in verses 2 through 5. Of a crooked judge and a widow woman. Then he's going to use verse 6, 7, and 8 to drive home the point of the parable. I have found that this, this seems simple, but it's kind of complex, but it's rich. It's rich. I found that out in my study. I think it's going to be a help. Look at this parable in verse 2. Here it is. Saying, there was a city and a judge which feared not God, neither regarded man. 
There was a widow in that city, and she came unto him, saying, Avenge me of mine adversary. And he would not for a while. But afterward he said within himself, Though I fear not God, nor regard man, yet because this widow troubleth me, I'll avenge her, lest by her continual coming she weary me. There's the story. So there are two main characters. The first is a judge. Jesus describes the judge as a man, I quote, who didn't fear God, neither regarded man. Now that's a stinging indictment because Jesus is saying this man is morally unfit to be a judge. He didn't care about God and he didn't respect people. Now that's pretty bad resume because I've met people that didn't fear God but at least they respected people. And I met people that didn't respect people, but it seemed like they at least claim to fear God. This man doesn't fear God, nor does he respect people. He was crooked. I'll call him the crooked judge. The other main character of the parable is a widow. And Jesus seems to go out of his way to describe her in, in what I'll call desperate terms. Now follow this. You need to understand. She was a woman who lived in the highly chauvinistic culture of the Middle East. So in a real sense, she had no personal rights. Her existence was tied to the men in her life. If you were here during the Ruth series, you would have been familiar with this concept. That means that her position and her provision and her protection were all snatched away from her when her husband died. And apparently she didn't have a father or a son or a brother, any other man to speak up on her behalf. That's why we see the widow woman approaching the judge herself. On top of that... This poor woman had an adversary who she couldn't handle on her own, according to verse 3. That's her issue. That most likely means, most scholars would agree, that she was entangled in some kind of financial affair or dispute, I mean, with some man who was taking advantage of her. Now here's the worst thing of all. This helpless poor woman happened to live under the jurisdiction of not a nice judge, a heartless, cruel crooked judge that didn't like people and didn't love God. So, under normal circumstances, poor helpless widow woman, no man in her life to speak up for, to vie for, anything like that, to vouch for. She goes to this judge. He doesn't like people. He doesn't like widow women. He doesn't even fear God. So, in a normal circumstance, she would go to him and say, would you help me? Because he didn't really care? No. I won't help you. End of day, end of story, that's it. I say under normal circumstances because when you evaluate the widow, she didn't have the power to force the judge to hear her case any further. She didn't have any powerful connections to influence him. She didn't have any money to bribe him. It's the end of the story. He said, no, you go home. But according to Jesus, it wasn't the end of the story. Because this widow did have something... She didn't have money, she didn't have power, she didn't have connections or influence. But she had something to convince the judge to change his mind. What was it? In a word, persistence. Persistence. H.B. Charles, one of my favorite preachers, he's a black Southern Baptist preacher in Florida. Tremendous. He wrote a book on prayer, and he imagined this scene and he articulated in his book. I want to read it, it'll be on the screen so you can follow. Imagine this scene in your head. The widow came to the judge's office, seeking justice against her adversary. The judge doesn't just refuse to help. He demeans her and kicks her out. 
The nerve of such a nobody to think he would act on her behalf. He then gets back to work, plotting further crooked schemes, never expecting to see or hear from this widow again. But when he leaves the office for lunch, there she is, asking for justice. When he returns, she is still there, asking for justice. At the end of the day, she follows him home, asking for justice. And when he leaves for work the next day, there she is, asking for justice. Unfortunately for this judge, he just can't issue a restraining order against this widow to make her leave him alone, so she keeps bothering him. Finally, her punishing persistence wears him down, and he agrees to hear her case and render justice. Can you hear him? Will someone please help this old lady before she knocks me out with unrelenting persistence? Can you imagine it? That's the parable, the illustration, the story that Jesus tells to make the point that his disciples should never quit praying, that when we get to a quitting point in prayer, we should persevere, persist, keep going. All right, that's the story. Now in verse 6, 7, and 8, he's going to drive the point of this parable home with a series of questions. And these questions, watch here, they force us to wrestle with a few points of tension in our text. They force us to ask a question about the unjust judge. They force us to ask a question about the persistent widow. Ultimately, both questions lead to a question concerning our own condition. The way we answer these questions are going to help us understand why we should persist in prayer. When it seems impossible, when we're emotionally spent, when we get distracted by a telephone call, when God just won't answer, or he won't answer when we want him to answer. And every other reason that was mentioned, why should I persist like that widow woman? Well, in answering these questions in verse 6 through 8, it's going to help us to understand why. Here's the first question. Is God like this crooked judge? Is God like this crooked judge? Now consider that for a moment. Because my first answer would be, well, kind of. I mean, there is a real sense in which God is like this crooked judge. Not in that he's crooked, but in that he's a judge. They both have the same authoritative role. They both have ruling authority. God is not like the crooked judge, but he is like him in that he's in charge. And aren't you thankful you pray to a God that is sovereign? You pray to a God that is in control. You pray to a God that is still on his throne. So in a way, he is like the judge. But that honestly is where the similarities end, because they are polar opposites in terms of their moral character. So, so, so get this, get this. In order to understand how to interpret this parable, you, you, you have to understand that Jesus teaches us about God in this text by way of contrast, not comparison. He's not saying God is like this crooked judge. He is saying God is the antithesis of, of this crooked judge. He's the opposite of him. That is, God is not and will never be a crooked judge. So he's trying to get us to see a key difference between this crooked judge and his story and the way God judges, the way God listens to us, the way God deals with our prayer request, and the key difference, watch, between God and the judge that we're supposed to catch. The contrast that is meant to teach us a key truth about persevering in prayer is this, the difference in how they each answer the request that is laid before them. 
So look how the crooked judge answered the request of the widow in verse 5. Look at it. Yet because this widow troubleth me, I'll avenge her, lest by her continual coming she weary me. You see that word troubleth? You see that in the verse? That is a term that literally means to give someone a black eye. That's how this widow got her way with this judge. She beat him down with her nagging and her unrelenting persistence, and he finally decided to help her just to get her off his back. I know you're thinking of somebody right now in your life that's beating you down. Well, you pray that God will give you patience. Now, look at the contrast between the way the judge answered the widow's request to how God answers our prayers. Verse 7, this is what we haven't touched on yet. Verse 6, rather. And the Lord said, hear what the unjust just saith. Verse 7. And shall not God avenge his own elect, which cry day and night unto him, though he bear long with them? Now this is important. Look up here. I hope you're thinking with me tonight. Both the judge and God didn't answer right away. Did you notice that? It took the widow a while, a long while. God is said to have avenged his elector, answered them or responded to them after they cried day and night. So watch here. The difference is not in the timing of how they answer. The difference is in their character. The difference is that the judge was heartless. He didn't respect people. He didn't love people. He wasn't even sensitive to widows. He only gave the woman what she wanted because she was annoying. God, however, desires to answer our prayer according to verse 7. How do you know? Because we're his elect. It says, Jesus says, and shall not God, unlike the crooked judge, and shall not God, the perfect, loving, holy judge, avenge his own elect? What's that word mean? His saved ones, his children, his beloved, those that are redeemed. Those that are purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ. Those that are trusted in the finished work of Christ on the cross. That's God's elect. Now get this. If you are part of God's elect, and I am, hallelujah, I am. If you're saved and his child and redeemed, he wants to be good towards you. He wants to be generous towards you. He wants to answer your prayer, especially the prayers that you pray day and night. Unlike the judge, he's not going to answer our prayers because we bug him long enough or we nag him hard enough or we wear him down enough. He's going to answer our prayers simply because he's good to us, because he wants to, because we're his elect, because he loves us, because we're his kids. Let me dig a little deeper into this. Richard Trent said, We must not conceive of prayer as overcoming God's reluctance, but as laying hold of his highest willingness. I imagine that your silence is because you're trying to figure out what it means or you're letting it sink in. Let me read that again. We must not conceive of prayer as overcoming God's reluctance. He's not the crooked judge. Rather, But it's laying hold of his highest 
willingness. He wants to hear you. He wants to answer you. He wants to be good towards you. He wants you to knock on His door and keep knocking and keep seeking and keep asking. Okay, let me support that with James chapter 1 in verse 17. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. And cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. What does all that mean in this context? Here's, watch here. It's revealing the character of God towards His children. The one that gives us gifts, answers our prayers, provides our needs. This means God is good. His character is good. And it doesn't shift. And it doesn't turn. And it doesn't change. And nothing that does shift, nothing that does turn, or nothing that does change, such as the sun, moon, and stars, can eclipse God's goodness towards His elect. In other words, God is good all the time. And all the time, God is good. So the answer is no. God is not like this crooked judge. And you're thinking, how is that supposed to encourage me to never quit praying? Well, think about it. If you really believe that God is good and always good, if you believe He's still good, even though life is bad, if you really believe that God's character of goodness and generosity towards His children never changes, you can pray with confidence. You can persevere. You can go to God for the same thing day and night, weeks, months, and years, and know that never once will you be bothering Him. To know this, to, to believe this, that God is good and wants to be good towards you and wants to answer your prayers according to His will and in His time. To believe, really believe this about God will keep you going in prayer even when it seems like He's inattentive. Are you with me? If every time my son came to me and asked for something, I chided him, acted put out with him, and was visibly bothered by him. Eventually, he's going to start doubting that I really want to be good towards him. He's going to start viewing me as a crooked judge. He's going to start doubting my goodness towards him. Even if I, like the crooked judge, finally give him what he asked for, but only because he annoyed me, he'll sense that. He'll stop wanting to annoy me. He'll stop feeling comfortable approaching me. And eventually, watch, he'll go to someone or something else that's not as put out. But if my son knew I loved him, knew I desired to be generous toward him, even if at times when I said no, or even at times when I said not now, like God tells us sometimes, he wouldn't hesitate or quit coming to me for things that were on his heart. He would persist in approaching me with boldness, with his request, because he believed I loved him. He believed that I wanted to be good towards him if I, if I thought it was best for him in the moment. Are you following my, 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 my track of... Are you following me? I don't think I'm doing a good job articulating this. Are you super tired? Or this is how the Wednesday night crowd is and I need to go back upstairs and impact. You're driving me crazy. Can you act more into it? Because I'm preaching hard up here. I act like I'm not doing a good job. You're listening hard? Good. I'm going to take for granted that you are. Some are listening hard with their eyes closed. All right. We need to learn how to listen hard and say amen. 
All right, I talked about that on Sunday. Come on now. Multitask, people. All right. The point is this. Watch here. My son will persist in coming to me boldly and with confidence if I don't act put out, bothered, and annoyed. If that was my disposition towards his request over and over and over and over, even a a selfish, persistent eight-year-old would lose heart. And so our belief about who God is towards us has a lot to do with whether or not we persevere in prayer or we quit in prayer. Because if we get to the point where we view God as a crooked judge who is annoyed by us and is bothered by us and only gives us what we want because we won't stop asking, if that's how we view our God, we're just going to stop approaching Him with confidence. You've got to be absolutely persuaded in your mind that his character is good and that never changes. It never shifts. It never turns. I'm saying he never stops loving you. He never stops desiring to hear from you. And in his time and in his way, he wants to answer your prayers according to his will. Why? You're his elect. You're his kid. You're his child. He's in love with you. You have to believe that about God. Or you'll eventually stop approaching him. Now that's a powerful thought. But that's not how Jesus closes the little sermon here to his disciples. He actually closes with a probing question in the last part of verse 8. Look at it. Nevertheless. I don't think I put this on the screen, did I, Brother Dustin? Okay, look at your Bible. Nevertheless. When the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? All right, look up here. The question that I just posed, is God like this crooked judge? Apparently is not the only question Jesus wanted us to consider. He also wanted us to consider this question. Ready? Are you like this persistent widow? Put that up there, Brother Dustin. First question. Is God like this crooked judge? Second question, are you like this persistent widow? Consider that. In many ways, I can tell you, if you're a child of God, part of the elect, you're not like the widow. Think about it. The widow was a stranger. You're a child of God. The widow had no access to the judge, but we have access to our Heavenly Father. The widow was alone and had no advocate. We have an advocate and a high priest in Jesus Christ the righteous. The widow had no promise or assurance that she she could cling to. But we can anchor ourselves to the promises of God in his holy word. The widow only had a court of law. We have a throne of grace. Thank goodness in these ways we aren't like the widow and never will be like the widow. But by asking this last question... When the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? Jesus is implying, watch, that there is one thing that you and the widow should have in common. What is he saying? When the Son of Man cometh, will find faith on the earth? He's saying this. When Jesus comes back, will he find you on earth in the same posture as he described this widow woman? 
Will he find you persistently praying by faith? Or will he find someone that has given up? Will he find someone that has lost heart? Will he find someone that has fainted in prayer? I'll say it this way, and I want you to remember this. Because God is not like the crooked judge, you should be more like the persistent widow. That's it. That's it. Because God is good, not not crooked, not bothered, not annoyed. Because God is generous, not mean, not short-tempered, not angry. Because God is good towards his elect, he should find you persisting in prayer, not quitting in prayer question and we'll hasten to a close if jesus came back tonight and if you've been part of our end time series you should believe that he could it's an imminent return of christ there's nothing left on the prophetic calendar that needs to happen for the rapture to occur like it could happen literally tonight if jesus came back how would he find you that's the question Would he find you persisting by faith in prayer? Or would he find that you've reached a quitting point and you've lost heart in prayer? To help you apply it, let me get more specific. I'll break down prayer into four different categories, things that should be evident in our prayer. There's supplication. What is supplication? It's bringing your needs to the Father. It's casting all your care upon him because he careth for you. Supplication is praying about your burdens, about your stresses, about your worries, about what brings anxiety and heartburn to you. That's supplication. I'm afraid that a lot, a lot of of the elect, a lot of the saved ones are walking around a lot more stressed out than they are meant to walk around. And it's because they are carrying burdens that they should have long ago given to the Lord in prayer. And it's not that they're not telling anybody about their burdens. They're supplicating to their best friend. They're supplicating to their pastor. They're supplicating to their social media world. We all see them supplicating on Facebook. Don't prime the pump on that one. I'll get going. It's not that they can't supplicate. It's that they've talked to everyone except the one that can do something about it. And isn't it easy to get into that habit where prayer is the last resort? It's the spare tire we keep in our trunk in case of emergency. It's an insurance plan in case that bad storm hits. Have you quit daily supplicating to God? Have you quit rolling your burdens onto Him? There's another way in which we can pray, and that's intercession. That's not talking to the Father about you. That's talking to the Father for others. I love the time in our Bible study class For about five, sometimes ten minutes before we start our Bible study, we take the prayer request of those in our class. And and it is pretty amazing 
Those in the synergy class can attest, once one person actually has the nerve to say, would you pray, it just starts rolling. Sometimes i got to turn my prayer sheet onto the back side. I'm just trying to make the point that I'm never at a shortage of who to pray for. There's always somebody I can be praying for, and I'm thankful to be part of a church where at 945 on Sunday, we can covenant together in intercession for one another. I'm thankful for that. But has prayer become all about you? Have you quit praying for other people? You pray for your pastor? You pray for your spouse? You pray for your kids? You pray for the salvation of a lost family member, a lost co-worker? You pray for your boss every day, the one that annoys you, the one that micromanages you, the one that you complain about in the break room? Do you pray, you pray to the Father about him, about her? You pray for your customers? Have you persisted in intercessory prayer? What's on your prayer list? Who's on your prayer list? It's a good question. There's supplication, there's intercession, there's confession. Forgive us our debts, it says in the model prayer. So we forgive our debtors. We, we ask for God to forgive us on a daily basis, not so that we can be re-saved, but so that we could maintain a sweet fellowship with Him. Some church folks wonder, why is God so distant? Why does God feel so far away? It could be because you stopped confessing your sin a long time ago. So much so that you don't even know you're sinning. It doesn't even come to mind when you go to the prayer closet. You've grieved and quenched the Holy Spirit in that area of your life for so long that when you kneel down to pray, there's supplication and there's intercession, but you don't even think about confession because the Holy Spirit's not even near that prayer closet. Oh, He's living in you. He hasn't left. But you've quenched Him. You've grieved Him. Your heart is hard. You've said no to Him so long. You haven't frequented the altar in years. Get what I'm saying? And, and, and David talked about what it did to his bones. He said, I, my bones waxed old because I, I didn't confess my sin. I held my sin in. I hid my sin. I denied my sin. Sometimes we justify our sin. Sometimes we minimize our sin. Sometimes we blame shift for our sin. And at some point, you've got to make confession a daily part of your life. Again, not so that you could earn extra favor with God. You are as a much child of God when you are a sinner as when you are a saint. When you're good and when you're bad, you are ever more the part of God's family. That's eternal security. But your fellowship with God can be strained big time. When you go weeks and months not being right with Him, having sin. In your life. How about this one? Adoration. How did, the, how did the model prayer start? How did it start? Our Father, which art in heaven. Finish it. Hallowed be thy name. What is he doing? It's adoration. It's respect. It's worship. I have on my phone 
to my prayer list for the week. I want to bring it up. It's in my notes app. And at the very top of my list, I put adoration. And for every day of the week, I have two two of God's attributes that I try to adore him for and worship him. Today it was God's faithfulness and God's mercy. And I I claim those attributes of God based on Lamentations chapter 3. He's faithful. Great is thy faithfulness. If it weren't for his mercy, we'd be consumed. His mercies are new every morning. For, For tomorrow, it's God's power and God's forgiveness. For Friday, I'll adore him for his provision and his protection. And it wouldn't take you long to think of two or three attributes of God that you could begin your private prayer time with every single day. And some of us, we just skip past that. Now imagine, imagine if that's the way your kids always treated you. They always skipped the respect phase and went to demanding. Some of you are chuckling, yep, that's how it is. Well, they won't be teenagers forever. But imagine, seriously. Imagine if your spouse dealt with you that way. Always skip the respect phase. Always skip the Father, hallowed be thy name. I'm not suggesting we should be worshipped in that way. Don't get that idea. But you get what I'm saying? wonder how God feels sometimes when when we want to supplicate and we want to intercede. And we want to confess. We want to ask for ourselves. We want to ask for others. And we want to beg forgiveness for our sins. And we never once stop to say thank you. We never once stop to consider you are my father in heaven. Hallowed be thy name. You never stop to really, really comprehend who you're talking to. He is not the big man upstairs. He is not a cosmic Santa Claus, a genie in a bottle. He is Abba Father. I mean, out of chaos, he spoke the cosmos into existence. In utter silence and darkness with the spoken word, he said, let there be light. And boom, there was light. All it took was one time for you to humble yourself and call upon the name of the Lord, and in an instant, he saved your soul. That's who you're talking to. You're not talking to just a friend. You're not talking to someone that can just, you can just trample on, take advantage of, and use for your pleasure and good. No, he wants to be generous towards you, but he demands respect and adoration and worship. I'm curious, when is the last time you prayed and on purpose you left out the top three and did nothing but adore? You didn't ask for anything, for anybody or yourself. You didn't even confess. 
All you did was you said, God, I come to talk to you today about you. God, I want to say thank you. I want to praise you for your goodness, and here's why. I want to praise you for my family, and here's why. I want to praise you for my church, and here's why. I want to praise you for my salvation, and here's why. I want to praise you for my house. I want to praise you for my heater. I want to praise you for my electricity. I want to praise you for my vehicle. Oh, and I want to praise you for my second vehicle. I want to praise you that I have a garage full of junk. I want, I want to praise you for health. I want to praise you for my spouse. I praise you for my grandkids. I want to praise you for my preacher. I want to praise you for a good job. I want to praise you for the freedom we have in the United States of America. When's the last time you did that and then said amen and you were done? I think I want to do that tonight. You can confess and intercede and supplicate, and that's just as important, but I think I want to, I think we need to persist in adoration tonight. So as we close, I wonder if you've quit in prayer. If you have, the text simply teaches us, number one, it's not okay. You're not right with God if you don't talk to God. Men ought always to pray and not to faint. Number two, if you're not persisting, you're not remembering God's good character. You should be so overwhelmed with God's goodness and generosity towards his elect that you run to him daily. His hands are spread out like this. His arms are wide open like this. The throne of grace is, is open all times every day. Jesus is waiting as our advocate, as our mediator between God and man. He's waiting to intercede on your behalf. If you would comprehend and really believe the goodness of God, you would pray more. You would pray more because you know he wants so bad to be generous towards you. Even if it takes crying to him day and night, he actually delights in hearing those cries. So let's adore him on this Wednesday night. Let's praise him on this Wednesday night. If you want to supplicate, supplicate. You want to intercede, intercede. You need to confess, confess. But let's adore him for a moment. Can we do that as a church? Let's pray. And, 